0: today on Edge Effects.
1: And so I think now this really is a moment to think much more concretely and directly about how stories from the flood can inform flood resilience planning and flood policy, and that this is a moment at which that can
0: happen. I speak with Caroline Gotchuk-Dreschke, Associate Professor in the Department of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Director of the Headwaters Lab, about her work with Stories from the Flood, an oral history project that seeks to collect and preserve the stories from victims of the devastating 2018 floods in the Driftless area of southwestern Wisconsin. We talk about living with floods in the era of climate change, community healing through storytelling, and the opportunities and challenges of community-engaged partnerships in the university setting. I'm Rochelle Wilson and this is the EDGEFX Podcast. Hello Caroline and welcome to the EDGEFX Podcast.
1: Hi there, thanks
0: for having me. It's a pleasure and I've been really excited to learn more about your work. I wanted to start off with this question. In addition to your work as a professor of rhetoric and composition, you're also doing research for a master's degree in environment and resources, focusing on stream ecology. For you, how do these fields connect?
1: Yeah, so I think they are deeply connected, and I am happy to say that I defended and finished that master's.
0: Oh, congratulations. (laughs) That's (laughs) fascinating.
1: May of 2021, I'm officially a graduate.
0: Oh, oh my, my gosh. Yeah, well, I will, ha- I will have to rephrase that then. So let's <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> that's
1: fine. Um, but that work came out of a really amazing fellowship project with the Mellon Foundation called the New Directions Fellowship. And that fellowship is meant to fund faculty in the humanities to really expand the work that they do across disciplines. And I think my proposal was maybe a little further afield (laughs) than a lot that it was so far outside of my discipline but I was very grateful that they um, funded me to pursue this work. So yep, I was a master's student in environment and resources through the Nelson Institute at UW-Madison. And my faculty advisor is Dr. Emily Stanley, who's in the Center for Limnology. So a lot of work that I did was based in CFL at UW-Madison. And I was researching the impacts of stream restoration and flooding on Kickapoo River watershed streams. And I think, I think I was especially interested in doing that because to me the you know the social and the material always connect and I want to understand all the pieces of that and so I think it it for me it wasn't enough just to think about how people talk about streams or flooding or restoration or what the human impacts of those are but really thinking about how those streams are managed and how they function and how they respond and how they change geomorphically. And and that was really important to me to really kind of physically get into those streams and think about how that works to then think more about how that impacts how people are experiencing flooding and how that will continue and why.
0: So you grew up in the Great Lakes region. How do you think this has shaped your relationship to water?
1: Yeah, I think it's a huge component. I was actually born in Queens, New York, in an apartment overlooking the East River. (laughs) so, So that was sort of the start of my story. And then my parents moved back to Chicago, where they had both been from for a long time. And I grew up, you know, within a mile of Lake Michigan. I was a junior lifeguard and a lifeguard on the beach there. I spent really every single day as much as possible when I was not in school at the beach. And water quality throughout the 1980s and 90s was not ideal. It's still not necessarily ideal, but that was absolutely sort of a part of experiencing the lake and thinking about combined sewage overflows and days when the beach was shut down and learning about kind of cool physical processes like satias and learning about invasive species and all of that was just really part of my daily experience and i was super lucky i think i didn't realize it at the time how rare and lucky that was and then i also spent time sometime every summer at a family house that we have had since you know turn of the century basically and still spend a lot of time at in west michigan in rural west michigan in an area with you know arguably some of the most beautiful cold water streams on the planet but also streams that have been pretty heavily Im- impacted by logging particularly and kind of land use change over time and that you know altered my dna i guess i think i think i was particularly interested in that stuff so that's that's no surprise but certainly having proximity to water both to lakes and streams And I think really having that experience of living in a very urban neighborhood in Chicago, and then having this experience of spending some time over, you know, decades in this rural area that also was sort of thinking about water and impacts of water and what that meant to people there really played an important role. And I think both of those experiences, how they've kind of shaped each other, definitely shape the work that I do. And I think Yeah, I've just always loved water. I don't know. My family loves water. I love water. My kids love water. It's just, it's just a thing.
0: No, I'm the same way. I I actually grew up in Southwest Michigan too, and we would vacation. on Lake Michigan. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I totally know what you mean. Like you're a beach baby, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, completely. A beach and stream baby. You know, I've always said like my, truly my first memory is laying in a canoe on the Pier Marquette River in Michigan. Like watching tree branches go by as my dad and brother were paddling and so
0: oh that's such a gorgeous just image a
1: special place
0: well now that you're here in wisconsin i'm kind of wondering what drew you to the kickapoo and i'd like you to take us to the driftless area as it's known what's this region of wisconsin like how does it differ from the rest of what people in madison or milwaukee might think of as wisconsin landscape
1: Yeah, I think the driftless area, which is, you know, geologically distinct, it's distinct for a whole bunch of different reasons, shocks people when they see it for the first time and certainly does not fit with people's stereotypical image of kind of flat-ish pastured landscapes maybe across Wisconsin. And the Driftless area is super hilly. It's steep. It's mountainous, unless you're from Colorado or Alaska or somewhere, (laughs) then you you don't think it is so much. But there are these sort of low mountain ranges in it. And um, it's very beautiful. It is very challenging in a variety of ways. I mean, it's a it's a flood-prone landscape anyway, even despite climate change and despite land use changes, which certainly impact flooding and accelerating flooding. But you know, it's steep, it's filled with cold water streams, it's naturally lakeless, and so a lot of water rushes through it. You know, it's an area that also is pretty resistant to A lot of the efforts to mechanize agriculture and mechanize all kinds of things, it's just it doesn't work that way because it's so steep. And so I think that has shaped agriculture there. It's shaped the economy of the region. It's shaped the culture of the region also. The Driftless area was home to the Ho-Chunk people and a number of other tribes that moved through the area. And Euro-American settlement happened starting in the sort of 1840s. But also, as I said, it was sort of resistant to turning that into thousand acre farms where you could just grab machinery and sort of plow it under. And so there's still a lot of kind of diverse agriculture in the region. There are a lot of Amish communities throughout the region. And it just looks, you know, looks different. It's also the home of a really kind of outstanding brown trout and brook trout fishery, which brings people from across the country and also means that there are some tensions really between this necessary, arguably necessary focus on tourism, on wanting professors from Madison to come out and spend money for the weekend and wanting people to come fishing from the Chicago area or buy second homes. And the sort of challenges too that that, that sets up for folks who live in the area, who have lived in the area and are trying to make a living in the area in a pretty rural and under-resourced region. You know? So you have wealthy folks coming from away, you have folks, a lot of folks without a huge amount of resources living there and some you know controversies perhaps between sort of fishing focused people agricultural focused people and so it's just a really kind of dynamic and beautiful and complex landscape And how I wound up on there, I had spent some time kind of traveling through the Driftless area as a kid from place to place and was kind of struck by it. And then when I left University of Rhode Island as a faculty member and joined the faculty at UW-Madison in fall 2017, I had a very early conversation with Paul Robbins, who's the dean of the Nelson Institute. And Paul is a super excited and excitable person, as, as you know. And I was talking a bit about the things I was interested in, which are like water, stream restoration, dams, dam removal, history, culture, story. And he said, oh, my gosh, you have to drive to this place. It's called the Kickapoo Valley Reserve. You have to meet this woman, Marcy West. She's the executive director. So I took his advice and drove out there and met with Marcy. And just, you know, like most people do, kind of fell in love with the place, fell in love with the people in the place. And it just seemed like there were so many interesting opportunities to collaborate with people and kind of think about how to contribute to work that was underway there about thinking about rivers and floods and creating a good life in the midst of rivers and floods. And so kind of things sort of took off from there.
0: Yeah, well, and there was a major flood event in 2018. Can you tell us a little about that?
1: Yeah, so there was a major flood event in August 2018, followed by another major uh, flood event in early September 2018. That was, you know, worst in recent memory, worst ever, perhaps. It did happen sort of right as Madison was flooding as well. So I think Part of the reason why folks in Madison aren't super aware of the extent of flood impacts in southwestern Wisconsin is that people in Madison were dealing with their own flooding impacts right here. But also, I think, you know, the flooding was sort of in the news, and then it was out of the news, and it was people were on to to other things. And I think it's also really difficult for people to grasp who haven't lived through floods, that floods aren't day long events, you know, that they're months long, years long events that they cause damage for a really long time that people are still dealing with now. So the Kickapoo River and Coon Creek watersheds received a ton of rain, just a sort of massive rain event in late August 2018 um, that set off a massive flood event through those two watersheds. You know, these are watersheds, as I said, that have flooded periodically, like flooding is sort of part of the cycle of life there. People mark time through floods. They talk about floods in the 1930s, 1970s, kind of accelerating 2007, 2008, and more recently. So I think people are aware that this is, this is an issue that seems to be happening more often and is getting worse through time. And as I said, that's partly because of climate change, for sure. You know, there's good research on that coming out of UW-Madison. It's partly because of the land use, agricultural use. And so these watersheds have really been struggling to respond to that large flood event in 2018, you know, that took out buildings and bridges and infrastructure and homes. And unbelievably, there was no loss of human life people who experienced the flood kind of can't imagine. There were so many close calls for so many people. And so folks in those watersheds are really working on, okay, how do we deal with this? How do we recover from that flood and from the prior floods and kind of hold our breath waiting for the next flood, knowing that that's coming and that luckily didn't happen, hasn't happened during uh, the COVID pandemic, for instance, which is kind of hard to believe, the challenges that that would pose for people and the danger that would pose for people, and so there's a lot of work underway with a number of flood recovery plans and planning, planning meetings throughout those watersheds to really think about, okay, how do we move forward from here? What does this involve? You know, what is this "quote unquote" new normal, and how do we deal with it?
0: Well, right, and in the aftermath of something like that, you have the disaster relief, you have the logistics. But you also have the trauma and you have the stories. And I think that's where your project comes in, Stories from the Flood. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would be quick to say it's I am very blessed to be part of this project, but it's definitely not my project. It's it's our project. It's a, it's a huge group effort. And yeah, the the trauma piece is a huge component of Stories from the Flood and the creation of the project. And so Um, Folks from the Driftless Writing Center, you know, Tamara Dean, Jennifer Morales, Lisa Henner, Robin Hoseman were all live in the area or lived in the area, um, experienced the flood themselves, were out helping neighbors clean out barns and get food and water and clean clothes and had this discussion of, hey, we, we should do something else. We kind of want to do more than the. We want to do this, but we want to do more than this. They're all very talented writers and storytellers and also are interested in the idea of writing as healing, like really thinking about what writing can do for people to move through trauma. And so all credit to them, they kind of hatched this plan to create this project called Stories from the Flood. Tamara Dean reached out to me in kind of late fall, Uh, 2018 about applying for funding from the Wisconsin Humanities Council to sort of kick off the project. Um, Tamara was also closely involved with Gil Hoyle, who is a licensed clinical social worker in the area who has been really instrumental to thinking about and training people in the aspects of trauma that this project deals with and really thinking about trauma on the individual level, but also on the community level. Margo Higgins at UW-La Crosse, who is a faculty member there in environmental studies, has also been instrumental to the project and and, um, supported a bunch of the trainings for folks who were doing story collection, et cetera. And so the idea behind the project was to try to get a group together to support residents of the Kickapoo River and Coon Creek watersheds to tell their flood stories and to do that as this kind of massive oral history project. The initial goal was to collect 200 stories, and to do those in settings like local libraries, to record these stories, to sort of bundle them together, and then eventually to actually deliver that archive, which we just did a few weeks ago, to the UW La Crosse oral history program at their Murphy Library and to the Vernon County Historical Society. Because of the complications of COVID and having to suspend story collection, were sort of on hold, but we'll be picking things up again. But where we were able to collect about a hundred oral histories that are now, you know, they're recorded, transcribed, indexed, and will be available through the oral history program and through the Vernon County Historical Society. And the goal of that, really, the primary goal of the project, was to support community healing through trauma. Like that was the point. And then the secondary the goal of the project was to think about how those individual stories, those, you know, hyper-local, hyper hyper-in-place, hyper-personal stories could potentially help to inform flood resilience planning moving forward. And so we're sort of at a point where we're starting to think about how that works now, but that really did kind of take a backseat to the the focus on healing, on community healing, which is not always the focus of universities.
0: (laughs) Well, that's right. And, you know, with climate change kind of barreling forward and the climate crisis escalating, we're seeing more and more communities affected in this way by major weather events and having the trauma of, you know, dealing with, not only what happened and recovery, but all these things that you're mentioning, um, needing a home for these stories, needing a place for them to land. So I kind of want to talk about the project a little bit for folks who may be thinking about it as a roadmap for something that they might do in their Mm. local communities or a partnership that their university might have with these communities. So what were some of the big kind of takeaways for you about implementing this project, the opportunities, the challenges? I know you're writing about this, so let us know. What what are you thinking?
1: Yeah, so maybe I'll start with this sort of, sort of more logistical focus and kind of build out from there. But certainly doing a project like this, and these projects have existed. So there have been people collecting stories about, you know, Hurricane Katrina, um, a number of hurricane and flood events. So Stories from the Flood is not not the only project to have done this. And certainly I think Tamara has talked about taking inspiration from some of those so it really involved a huge amount of um, of community support of getting volunteers in who were willing to be story collectors first of all, and all of those trainings you know were coordinated by the Driftless Writing Center by Margo Higgins at UW La Crosse by Gil Hoyle, kind of training people to be sensitive to talking with people about these traumatic stories about flooding and so there were a number of kind of community trainings for volunteers then there was a process of setting up these story collection events at local libraries in the winding rivers system and so that took a lot of coordination it also took a lot of and and coordination that I did not do, coordination that the Driftless Writing Center um, worked through, and having people kind of on hand to staff these collection events. And then also realizing that a lot of people weren't comfortable necessarily traveling to the library and sitting in a big room and telling their story. And so that's really when story collection kind of shifted more to one-on-one personalized visiting someone in their home and talking through a story. And that's something that the students at UW Madison and UW La Crosse, undergrads, were so helpful with, was taking their weekends to schedule these story meetings. You know, driving out to people's homes, often looking through pictures, looking at flooded areas of basements and yards and farms, and sitting with them and really kind of building a one-to-one relationship to listen to these to these stories, and. So I think that's important for anyone who's interested in conducting a sort of similar project is that it it takes a huge amount of people and a huge amount of coordination to kind of pull off in a, at scale, you know, when the goal was really to talk with more than five or 10 people, but really to kind of think about how can we figure out how people across the watersheds were impacted by this. So that was key. I think then a big piece that we're sort of still dealing with now and that students have been really helpful with both at UW-Madison and UW-La Crosse is just dealing with all the material (laughs) and dealing with all that material, not from a research standpoint necessarily of, oh, how do I make meaning of all this and turn this into an article, but really like logistically, project management wise, dealing with all the material, there are 70 audio files in two different formats. So there are like 150 audio files. We had to work through the process of professional transcription. So that was kind of keeping keeping track of all these, sending them off to be transcribed. Getting them back, actually having students go through the process of then quality controlling those transcripts and making sure that they were marked up with their audio files. And then to make them useful and accessible at the Vernon County Historical Society and the oral history program at the Murphy Library, they needed to be indexed. And that was something that the Murphy Library can do, but takes one student working part time, you know, in a student hourly job, a huge amount of time to get through 70 audio files or something. Just keeping track of all that is a huge component of this, certainly, and the consent forms and kind of all the related material. So I think that was key. And then building out a little bit more to just the sort of challenges and opportunities of doing the work in a university setting, I think, is a challenge. I think you know universities, in some ways, working at UW-Madison has been really useful for this project because of the Wisconsin idea, because UW-Madison is sort of focused on the importance of extending the work that we do on campus to the lives of folks around the state. So the Wisconsin idea is problematic in some ways, which I could give a different lecture about and I won't. Our position as a land-grant institution is problematic in a bunch of ways, which is should be a focus of another podcast as well. But all of that does set a little bit of a tone that I think people on campus thought that the work had value. And at other campuses, that might not have been the case. Like the idea, oh, we're going out to southwestern Wisconsin and collecting stories about flooding in hopes that that supports community healing was something that you know, a department chair and a dean think, this is great. This is part of what we're supposed to do in the state of Wisconsin. So I think that part was useful. But I think just the challenge of universities generally kind of their mode of operation is that they're not necessarily set up to support and reward slow work, like slow work without deliverable. And that's a challenge. And I think we're really lucky at UW-Madison to have a resource like the Morgan Center for Public Service. Who do wonderful trainings and great advocacy and support financially this kind of work? You know, they've been really instrumental to helping to support stories from the flood financially and logistically. But I think I also have realized I was really lucky to be trained as a graduate student in a community engaged scholarship program that was focused on community based writing and did a lot of work to think about decentering university expertise. And this was at University of Illinois at Chicago. And I think I underestimated the fact that other people didn't have that same training, uh, honestly, that I came from what was actually a pretty unique orientation towards working with community organizations. And so that has been somewhat of a challenge just to sort of work through my own positionality as a faculty member in an institution, I was still getting to know. I mean, I got involved in stories from the flood when I was pretty brand new, still at UW Madison, and so kind of working out. Okay, what do my colleagues value? What does the administration value? And also, just what are the pressures that other people are thinking through about, you know, turning this into research or thinking about it as a as a research effort when it was very clear from my colleagues at the Driftless Writing Center that this was not research to them. (laughs) This was not another chance for UW-Madison faculty to come out and turn trauma into research. And so that has, I think, really been a challenge and a lot of labor and a a good challenge, a challenge for me to kind of learn how to navigate that and negotiate that. So I'm I'm definitely not saying this was everyone else's fault and not mine. I don't, I don't mean that. I, I mean, it was really a learning experience of like, okay, how do I advocate for this truly reciprocal relationship when that can be an awkward thing to do or a hard thing to do, or you have to like really kind of hold firm at the university that, nope, like this isn't an article yet. <laughs> um, this is really just learning to support people in the ways that they wanna be supported.
0: Yeah. And what about in the classroom? I know the Stories Mm -hmm. from the Flood was a part of your teaching. How did that work with students?
1: That part has actually been great. So at the undergraduate level, I teach every semester this section of English 245, which is a class called Seminar in the Major. So my version of it is called Writing Rivers. It has a community-based learning designation from the Morgridge Center and each semester since fall 2019 the class has been focused entirely around stories from the flood so stories from the flood isn't one small unit or a side project or an assignment the class is just shaped around whatever needs to happen for stories from the flood in that given semester and so fall 2019 the first time we did that was really a fly by the seat of your pants experience of we think there'll be stuff to do we don't know what it is on the first day of class the syllabus was really kind of a blank and that is not a great way to teach and i don't advocate for that but in some ways building a new community university collaboration on a pretty new community project you just don't know and so the students were incredibly graceful and gracious working through that process of just okay we're gonna see how this goes and see what happens and they really did a lot of story collection They did a ton of work um, analyzing kind of some of the big themes that were coming out of those earliest oral histories, working on identifying especially powerful sections of those oral histories to feature in a booklet that was actually distributed at a celebration event in November 2019, where a lot of the storytellers from the project came together along with state politicians and decision makers and UW-Madison folks and UW-La Crosse folks to really think about kind of marking everyone's contribution to the project. And the students were really heavily involved in that. And then in subsequent semesters... Students in Writing Rivers have, as I said, kind of done the work that needs to happen at the time. So that went from quality controlling transcripts to doing these sort of pieces of thematic writing, thinking about what's coming out of these oral histories to think more towards kind of policy recommendations They have worked on creating the indexes for the oral history program at UW La Crosse. They also have worked on identifying audio clips to embed in a map that we are working on to kind of highlight the results of stories from the flood. And then undergraduate students in environmental studies at UW La Crosse in Margo Higgins' class have contributed in, I think spring 2020 and spring 2021 doing that same work alongside students at UW Madison. So we've had some interesting overlap between them. And then the grad Che methods class at UW Madison also contributed. But students in Writing Rivers are still continuing that work even through COVID. So I'm teaching, I was teaching the class all year last year asynchronously online, and it was still a community-based learning class, and students were still contributing to Stories from the Flood, working with these oral histories, thinking about how to prepare them for the oral history program, um, et cetera. And so that has been a central focus of the teaching in that class and has really been a wonderful chance to connect with students. I think the undergraduates particularly um have a certain magic in a pro- in a project like this where when they go out to meet with folks who experienced flooding you know their sort of 19 year old open wide-eyedness was really appreciated by people and we've we've heard that feedback from a lot of storytellers of feeling really nervous about sharing their story and having this very small audience, you know, of undergrads come out really being interested to connect with them and learn from them and listen to them openly that that was a really important part of the sort of experience for storytellers.
0: Yeah, it seems like this program was really successful the way that I look at it, but I know that you had mentioned earlier the like traditional deliverables on something like this is they're they're not there. You have to evaluate it sort of in a different way. What have you seen to be the successes of this project where you walk away and you feel like that was the thing we wanted to do?
1: Yeah, I think those are still in process. You know, I think the fact that we are now at, you know, just over a hundred oral histories, that together we have worked to create an archive where People who have contributed to it have been able to see that they are not the only person who experienced flooding (laughs) and who experienced trauma. And that sounds like a silly thing to say, but I actually don't mean that. I think even though everyone knows that everyone was experiencing the flood around them at the same time, that's still a really isolating experience. And a lot of people don't live close to their neighbors. So it's experienced alone in a lot of ways. And so I think the fact that there is now this sort of growing community archive that shows all the different ways that people have gone through this experience and also points in a lot of ways, you know, not just to trauma, but to all the like really creative and beautiful problem solving and community building that people have done to respond to flooding that there's really this sort of wealth of ideas of how people can move forward. So I think, you know, that's that's a piece I look at and say, wow, that's it's coming together, <laughs> you know, that, that's coming together. And we have heard from a number of the contributors and storytellers that they feel good about having participated in that, that it was a good experience actually to tell what was even somewhat of a traumatic story and to realize that other people were listening to it, open to it, interested in it. So I think that's important. Definitely the relationships developed through it have been really central to me. So, you know, getting to know the folks at the Driftless Writing Center, folks involved in the project throughout the Kickapoo and Coon Creek watersheds, Margo Higgins at UW La Crosse, you know, folks at the Morgrid Center, that that has been really wonderful kind of infrastructure, social infrastructure. Seeing the growth of the students involved in the project has actually really been central. I think the students who gravitate to the project tend to be people like me who like reading and writing and creative stuff. And then they also spend a lot of their time measuring things in rivers and canoeing, and they haven't really experienced a way for those things to come together necessarily. And so I think that has really been interesting to see as people sort of drawn to the class because they realize, oh, I can think about rivers, but I can think about people and story, and I'm going to see what happens there seeing those students kind of find find their way through that and really contribute a lot to it and do it as sort of heart work, you know, has been amazing to see. So I think those are big. And then moving forward, I do think the pandemic sort of putting a pause on story collection did sort of cap off a kind of stories from the flood (laughs) 1.0. We're sort of moving into a stories from the flood 2.0, because we have a little bit of a pause moment. And so I think now this really is a moment to think much more concretely and directly about how stories from the flood can inform flood resilience planning and flood policy, and that this is a moment at which that can happen as there's... A plan EIS process going on in the Coon Creek watershed that is about flood planning and decision making related to dam breaches, also in the West Fork of the Kickapoo, and a lot of conversations happening now. And so, I think this is a moment when it becomes imperative to say, okay, here's what people saw, here's what we're seeing, here's some of the biggest themes, here's some of the biggest needs, mental health resources, physical health resources, damaged infrastructure, that I think that is really important to me as well. And as, you know, I won't be satisfied, I guess, unless we do that. But all of those things I named, right, are are not really traditional academic (laughs) deliverables or like... I love seeing my students grow. I'm interested in, you know, flood resilience planning and community healing and trauma, right? Like those are not, you know, CV lines necessarily. So, so I think you're sort of pointing out some of the, some of the challenge of doing that and some of the privilege of the position I'm in that I'm a tenured faculty member and, So I have some latitude to slow down and take a little time to do things that other other instructors can't necessarily, you know, that I can absorb some risk in that way.
0: Well, thank you for that. And thanks so much for joining us to share about stories from the flood. Who is it that you're hoping to hear these stories who maybe hasn't before and what would you want them to take from it?
1: I'm very interested in folks who contributed to stories from the flood in being able to listen to other community stories. So not all of them have had the chance to do that yet. They have heard each other talk at events like the celebration in November 2019, but they haven't had access to the stories necessarily. And so I think that will be that will be interesting but potentially overwhelming, but I think is important. I think it's really important for policymakers around the state to be listening to these stories or parts of these stories. And I think it's actually really important for scientists who are working on the impacts of flooding and climate in the state also to listen to some of these stories to just really personalize the effects of these events on the ground as they are experienced by people in their homes as water is rushing in around them, you know, like really understanding the, the sort of depth of that experience. So I think those are really key to me, understanding that or making sure that these stories get in the hands of the storytellers, that they get in the hands of people who are making decisions about flooding in the state, and also people who are doing research about about aspects of flooding in the state.
0: That was Caroline Gotchuk drischke Associate Professor in the Department of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Director of the Headwaters Lab. Learn more about stories from the flood at wisconsinfloodstories.org. You can also hear more about the 2018 floods in the Driftless on the Human Powered podcast from Wisconsin Humanities, Love Wisconsin, and Field Noise Soundworks. The episode is called The Power of Experience, and it's available at wisconsinhumanities.org slash podcast or wherever you listen. You've been listening to Edge Effects, A production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Carly Griffith and me, Rochelle Wilson. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.